You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we've got an interesting show lined up. Well, I hope every show is interesting, but this one is one that's also very personal to me. As many of you regular listeners know, April is Autism Awareness Month. And since my wife and I are both on the spectrum with Asperger's, I always like to try and highlight someone who's in the field and get very important and talk to people who are related to people who are in the fear. But this week we, we do have someone who's in the fear himself. My guest is Ron Sandinson. He works full-time in the medical field and he's a professor of theology at Destiny School of Ministry. He's an advisory board member of the Autism Society Faith Initiative of the Autism Society of America. Sandinson has a Master of Divinity from Oral Roberts University and is the author of A Parent's Guide to Autism, Practical Advice, Biblical Wisdom, published by Charisma House. He has memorized over 10,000 scriptures, including 22 complete books of the New Testament and over 5,000 quotes. Ron has published articles in Autism Speaks, Autism Society of America, Autism Foul Magazine, Autism Parenting Magazine, Not Alone, The Mighty, The Detroit News, The Oakland Press, and many more. He frequently guest speaks at colleges, conferences, autism centers, and churches. Ron and his wife, Kristen, reside in Rochester Hills, Michigan, with a baby daughter, Michaela Marie, born on March 20th, 2016. You can contact Ron on his website at www.spectruminclusion.com or email him at sanderson456 at hotmail.com. And if you're wondering about those, we'll be discussing those again at the end. So, uh, Dr. Sanderson, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, thanks for having me on your show. I really look forward to hearing your questions and being able to answer and share my insight and mm-hmm. the gift God's given me. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Because when, when I read your story, when I, read it, I was kind of expecting to meet someone who was kind of like a nerd like myself. And in many ways, you are. But you're also quite athletic, it looks like. Yeah, I had a great gift for track and cross country when I was in high school. And the key to my success was my mom. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, Do you see a man skilled in his labors? He was served before kings. He not served before obscure men. And in the 70s and 80s, in the time frame that I grew up, 1982, when I entered kindergarten, the school system with special education was archaic. What their method was was put all kids with disabilities together away from typical kids and babysit them and with doing that kids wouldn't learn the essential skills with disabilities to be able to succeed in life and my mom when she saw that the special education department was basically or was basically babysitting kids rather than educating kids she told them my son won't serve before obscure men 
pumping gas. He won't serve up by before a pure men bagging groceries or being a dishwasher. But I'm going to develop his gift, his talent for God's glory, and he's going to serve before kings. Daniel 6.3 says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrative and sap traps by his exceptional qualities, the king planned to set him over his whole kingdom. And my mom knew I had an exceptional gift for memory. She knew I had an exceptional gift for not giving up perseverance. And she knew if she could develop those gifts, I'd be able to succeed in life. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, English preacher, said, By perseverance, the snail made it on the ark. And my success in life had a lot to do with my mom, faith, and by perseverance, this snail made it on the ark. Yeah, my mother called me today, and she was wondering when this show would be up. And I think she's going to be very pleased here, Miss. And I was thinking that our stories seem very similar because I, mean, I was born in 1980, and when I was getting ready to go for the school system in Knox County, Children on the autism spectrum, I understand, were not going through the regular school system at all. And I was the first one to be going through. I mean, to be fair, I wasn't diagnosed until fifth grade, but even still, they knew something was different. And they kept me in the regular schools, and I was just trying to blend in as much as I could. And I, I, I don't know about you, really, but... For me, when I look back on things, it, it can be hard when you're growing up on the spectrum and things are so different, but ultimately, I see it as a gift. I see being on the spectrum as a gift because, like you, I'm able to memorize things where I like the way my mind thinks. I mean, yeah, there are some disadvantages, but overall, I'm very happy with it. And, and what do you think about that? And I think it is a gift. One of my favorite quotes I've come up with is, God does awesome things through lowly things. One thing I like to share when I guest speak at um, colleges, a couple of days ago on Thursday, I spoke at Rochester College to over 600 students on theology. And my, my text was from Psalms, and my message was called God's Gatekeeper or God's Doorkeeper. And I talked mm -hmm. about how... Many times, being on the autism spectrum, I felt like a doorkeeper in the kingdom of God. Part of the kingdom, but yet a little bit outside the kingdom. Mm -hmm. in the I didn't follow the norm of what people thought of a pastor. When mm -hmm. people first met me, I didn't give them good eye contact. Oh, I didn't yeah. always give a firm handshake. I do now, yeah. since I've learned that those areas are areas that I need to improve in, and mm -hmm. I focus on those areas. And I think that the gift of autism is really that we are able to do extraordinary things. One of the things I share is that I have no phonetic ability. I cannot sound out words, but I have more RAM space than everyone in the audience. And unless there's <laughs> someone else on the autism spectrum, I can compete with them with the 10,000 verses memorized. Yeah, it, it, it's really funny when you're talking like that about the phonetic problems, because and I was the same way. When I was growing up, I was in speech therapy. I could not say the R sound to save my life or the TH for me it was sound. Yeah, TH for me too. And then when I was getting ready to go to Bible college, we went through voc rehab with my disability. And they were saying, you know, you really should be considering going into engineering or such because you're just so smart. And 
you know, ministry just doesn't seem like the right thing for you. No, no, I want to go into ministry, but you said, no, no, I said, look, ministry involves public speaking, and you are just not going to be able to handle public speaking. So I was like, yeah, I kind of wish they'd been there when I gave my senior sermon to my entire graduating class. That would have been pretty nice there. In, in, in the phonetic thing, for me, public speaking is just something that comes naturally. It's easy, and I I remember Hugh Ross coming on my show once, and we were talking about this kind of thing, and he said something I think many people like us on the spectrum would agree with. He said, I would rather talk to 100 people than to one person. That's how I am, too. I yep. think the crowd's better than individually. Individually, mm-hmm. I'm always afraid of messing up in what I say. Yep. When I was a TA, a teacher's assistant at Oral Roberts University for Old Testament and New Testament, I had a student, his name was Pedro, and the whole semester I called him Pebbles because I was unable to pronounce his name or phonetically read it out. Mm-hmm. And I like to say that a lot of times, due to my phonetic disability, I'll say things that um, people will be wowed by, thinking that um, I'm doing it as a joke, but I'm seriously, that's how um, I'm unable to sound out names a lot of times. Mm-hmm. My brother Chuck, seven years old, is a joke. You, you dropped out a, a little bit there. You got really quiet just now. Oh, sorry. Okay. My brother Chuck said when I was when he was seven years old, he said, "I think my brother Ch- Ron speaks Norwegian because I sounded so different from the typical child." Yeah, when I was growing up, the first few years, I had to have pretty much a translator with me. But we, we quit being ahead of ourselves. That's why someone's listening to it and they're not familiar with what we're talking about. And, and even if you've been around, you've heard the word autism, it can still be pretty hard to define. If you were trying to describe someone what the term is, what would you say it is? I'd say autism is a different way of neurologically processing information. It's a way that's more for many on the spectrum, visual rather than audio. Mm-hmm. That's why they first diagnosed me when I was seven years old. They said it was audio input disorder. Mm-hmm. Also, autism for me is repetitive behavior. Every day oh, yeah. after, I have to, at 3.30 p.m., I have to spend two hours memorizing Bible verses. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in high school and I was a great athlete every day at 3.30 to 4 p.m. Like Green Man and his Jeopardy, I had to work out with weights. I could bench press 260 pounds my senior year of high school, and I could bench press 220 pounds over 10 times in repetition. So I think it's um, a neurological way of processing information different than what the typical person does. And there's an old saying, you met one person with autism. You just met one person with autism. Everyone is different, but there's certain characteristics that form the family of autism. What I'd say is repetitive behavior. Mm-hmm. What I'd say um, sometimes delayed. Some people with Asperger's don't have the delay, but they have the advancement in their vocabulary. And then sensory issues. For me, sensory issues were the difference between bottled water and Mountain Dew. Mm-hmm. Bottled water, you shake it up, not much is happening might blow off a little steam, 
Most kids, when they get upset, they're like bottled water. You can shake it up, they blow off their steam, and they're fine. Not me. I'm like Mountain Dew. I get shaken up. I'm neurologically carbonated. You mm. open you get the dew. Yep. And that's how meltdowns were for me when I got too much information, too much was going on. Mm-hmm. I kept hit, made too much, too much. Or I banged my head against the wall because I wasn't able to process information quickly. Even Einstein, one of his favorite sayings was, can you please slow down so I can think about that question? I think that's an autistic comment, is a lot of times we can process great amount of information, we can figure out great problems, but then some things that people find very easy to do, we find very difficult. A good Mm -hmm. example is my wife had a C-section when she had her baby our baby, March 20th, Mikhail Marie, and she asked me uh, upon discharge, go get the car seat out of the um, car. I go down there. I spend 30 minutes trying to figure out how to get that car seat out. I'm wrestling. I felt like I was um, one of the swamp people dealing with a nasty croc, nine-foot croc, and I tried everything I could in my power, and I couldn't figure out how to get that car seat out. I even read the directions, and general with my autism is very hard for me. When I read directions, they're like reading something in a foreign language or reading the Spanish side when it should be in English. Right. And luckily, when I walked, um, got back to um, the hospital, a guy was carrying a car seat. So I said, can you help me get the car seat up? He walked over the car, pressed the lever, pulled up, and boom, it was out. But after I saw him do that, now I'm always able to get that car seat out. But see, reading directions, Yep. or um, hearing someone tell me how to do it, I'm not mm-hmm. able to do it, but when I see it, again, visual learning, I'm able to take the car seat out, get it out, and get Mikhail Marie on her little adventures. Yeah, even though they say he's not on the spectrum, usually whenever people want me to give him an example or something, I always say, think about Sheldon Cooper of A Big Bang Theory, and that's the way a lot of us are. Mm-hmm. And when I told uh, you, Ross, about that, he said, yeah, people ask us about that show all the time. I have to say, they had to turn that down a whole lot because we are even nerdier than that. But I also like what you said about everyone on the spectrum being different. My wife and I are both on the spectrum. We're as different as night and day in many ways. I would go absolutely crazy in a bookstore because I love the books. I'll be up on my Kindle late night hours reading, reading, reading. For her, reading is a chore. She would much rather listen to a lot of stuff that she says is music. I debate with her on that point. I'm not sure it qualifies, but that's what she likes to do. And she's much more artistically oriented than I am. Me, I can do it some, but like, yeah, this really doesn't get me uh, give me the books instead but we're both on the spectrum yep and with me too I find that um, today we had guests over but then I had to do my two hours of memory while the guests were over so mm-hmm. I just go in, the, in our bedroom and do my memory work and then by the time I was done with my memory work all the guests were gone seeing the baby mm-hmm. so a lot of times I like to have that solitude especially when I work I work today for eight hours at the hospital and when I get off work for my brain to 
neurologically be able to kind of calm down, mm -hmm. I need to do the memory work because then I'm able to focus, I'm able to um, concentrate, center again, and refuel for the next day of work. You know, I do think <clears throat> when we talk about processing is very interesting because for me, I can tend to process multiple things going on at once. My in-laws had the strangest time with this when Allie and I were first married and we'd come down there because I, I like to spend some time gaming, but I don't want it to take up other time I could be doing other things. So usually I'll wait until like, we're watching a TV show together or something. And so we'd sit down together and I'd break out a, a Game Boy or something or something like that. And I'd be sitting there and I'd be playing and they'd be talking to me. And they think I was being rude at first, and then they realize, no, he's able to do that, and he knows everything that we're saying, and he's able to respond at the same time. It doesn't mean I do that around everyone, but it, it's just the way the brain works. I mean, I, I, it's kind of thing. like, if I just sit here and I only do this, I'm not going to have enough to keep my mind going. I need more. Yeah, I have that, too. A lot of times I'll be doing working on my computer when my wife talks to me, marketing my book, um, sending out emails to people who can help me mm -hmm. uh, market my book or articles that I'm trying to get published in different publications. And I find it easy to hear what people are saying and process and do two things at once where if I had just tried to just listen, I may not be fully listening because I'm going to be focusing on sending those emails out or getting... Right thing that I want to get done at that time done. Right, right, because the, the priority is there and you feel like you're being distracted and you're not able to fully focus. Yeah. Well, let's also talk some about one of the things that uh, athletes usually also have a trouble with is the social aspects of relationships. And that, that's usually like walking through a minefield or something, right? Will you, how, how do you think social relationships are different? I think social relationships are different because a lot of times when you're on the spectrum, mm -hmm. you can't read social cues. Right. A lot of times a girl may like you, you don't um, pick up on those signs like her, the way she looks at you, the way she smiles at you. I was looking mm -hmm. at John Tess and he said one sign a girl likes you and finds you attractive is if on your first date after she's seen you, or she's seen a picture of you, she shows up in red. Where mm -hmm. people with autism, a lot of times these social clues, maybe a girl sm smiles at you, we don't pick up on those. And what ends up happening with a lot of young adults, males especially, they come across as a barracuda to the female who is typical and not on the autism spectrum. And the male who's on the autism spectrum, they come too strong. And a lot mm -hmm. of times, with autism, you become fully focused. In a relation, in college, if you become fully focused, you get all A's. In a relationship, if you become fully focused, you get a restraining order. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's gold. I, that, I, I have to memorize that one. So, you know, it, okay. The verse in the Bible, Songs of Solomon, and Song of Solomon is a, the love chapter. Some say it's the love Solomon had for one of his thousands of wives. Do you have that book memorized? I have a bunch of verses from it, not the whole book, though. <laughs> but the verse I like is Songs of Psalm 2-7, and it says, Do not awake 
arouse love until it so desires. Mm -hmm. What ends up happening with a young adult with autism, it could even be a female or a male, but since four out of five people with autism are males, it's more likely to happen to a male with autism, is that they'll see a girl in their class, they'll become focused on the girl, and they'll stare at the girl, well, everything on in the class is going on if they're college age. If they're career age, they may go to a church group, or they may go to a singles group, or they may go to an online chat site, and then instead of seeing the whole spectrum of all the eaves in the garden, they'll focus on just one eve. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't, the love hasn't awakened yet, it hasn't been desired yet, and it causes him to do what I call, some people call it spiritual dating or daydream dating. Mm -hmm. What dating is, is when you see a girl, you start thinking about all the activities you'd like to do with her, maybe going camping, maybe um, going on a romantic walk. And then where it always leads to is then you picture yourself marrying that girl. And what ends up happening when someone spiritual dates a girl, or you could call it daydreaming dating, by the time they're on the first date, they're already in the standing before the altar where the girl is just entering the first date. Mm -hmm. And it makes them appear awkward. It makes them appear socially um, acting in ways that are inappropriate and bringing up things in the relationship that are, would be way down the line rather than enjoying the moment. Mm -hmm. and I, one thing that people with autism should do is they should be interested but not hovering. I share that in my book when I talk about some different aspects of ways to um, be on the spectrum and date. Yeah, I always said since we got married that I do tend to hover sometimes. Yeah. And I, I, I'd say also I'm extremely, extremely protective of my wife. If anyone ever dares insert her on Facebook, stay out of the way, there will be blood. It will not be pretty. <laughs> and that's common for us on the spectrum. We want to possess um, and, and have control over things. Mm -hmm. And because so much of the world is uncontrollable and we feel like if one area we can cultivate it and control it, then it gives us more um, mm -hmm. ability to be in control of our destiny. Well, you know, this kind of leads to the question that I'm sure a lot of people are wondering. This is one of my first questions I like to ask people on the spectrum when I find out they're married is that, you know, it's hard enough, a lot of us when you are typical guys, to ask a girl out and eventually get married and such. How did you do it then? I followed some simple principles. I'm going to go mm -hmm. through these in my book. I talk about them. Mm -hmm. And one of them is never give up. <laughs> the Bible verse, Proverbs 24:16. it says, A righteous man falls seven times, but rises again. And anyone who knows numerology in the Bible, seven's a perfect number. Mm -hmm. So you could be a perfect failure, fall every time in a relationship, but if you rise one more time than you fall, you'll succeed in the end. There's an old saying, the only difference between a successful person and a failure is a successful person rises one more time than he falls. Mm -hmm. When I realized I wanted to get married, when I realized I wanted to find the right one, I realized that if I don't give up, if I keep moving forward, 
then sooner or later the right one will come. When you go up the Statue of Liberty, there's steps going up, three steps up, and then all of a sudden there's a little way for you to rest. And a lot of times, dating's the same way. You go three steps up, maybe you step back, and you got to rest. Then you, you go up some more, and then finally you get to the top of the Statue of Liberty where the light is, and you learn from the different dating experiences. You learn twice, where you were maybe dark in, in your understanding before. Mm -hmm. The key is to learn from your experience. There's an old saying, a girl goes out knowing, a guy goes hoping. And what that means is when a girl meets you, within 10 seconds of her meeting you, she knows if you date you or not. When a guy goes out to meet girls so often, he's hoping, I hope I meet a girl today. And the approach that I took right before I met my wife is, Play it easy. Just be yourself. And then don't look for the girl. Look for the girl who's looking for you. Mm -hmm. You know that a girl goes knowing. When you meet a girl, you know if she'll date you or not based on does she give you eye contact, based on is she is her foot pointing towards you, body language. Ninety percent of language is body language. Body language never lies. So if you can learn body language, you can learn how to interpret it, which many of us on the spectrum lack, then you can succeed. Also, there's an old saying that I love, it's not you, it's them. With um, autism, we have a tendency to take everything personally. It's yeah. like we wear our hearts on our sleeve. Mm -hmm. And whatever anyone says to us, it's like you took a black marker, wrote it on a white tag, and you post it on you. And when I was online dating, meeting girls, one of my friends met his wife online and he said, I'm going to help you out, I'm going to help you put together a um, profile and you're going to be successful like me. And um, what we found that was really interesting, that I think has a great impact and insight for people with autism, is this. I sent an email to this girl who was in Lake Orion, which was about 20 minutes from where I live. My friend, since I didn't have internet on my phone, I had the rumor phone and where you can text but you can't use internet, I'd have to call him when I was on break at work, working afternoon, and ask him to check my emails. And he'd check my emails and um, let me know if I had any messages, and then he'd send them a message back. What was interesting is since he was on the site before me, he had a foreknowledge of who these people were, almost like a divine foreknowledge God would have based on his experience with them. And I sent an email to a girl in Lake Orion, and my friend Matt said, you got a three-letter message, from, a three-page message from this girl, Elizabeth. It's a great message. You can tell she's thought through all that she put it. When you, you email her back, you're going to get another message. So I sent her a message. Sure enough, I got another message. He goes, when you email this third message, you're never going to get a message back. And... So I emailed her a third message, and guess what happened? Never got back. Never got back. And what happened is I go, how did you know that, Matt? I was thinking he was a, a um, psychic or something. He said, well, when I was on Plenty of Fish and Match.com, I sent her a message, too. And after my third message, she ne never sent me back the favor. He said, it's not you, it's them. Mm -hmm. There's another experience. There was a girl, Rachel, who was nearby. And... um. 
I had Matt check my emails. He goes, you got a phone number. He goes, it's a real phone number, Ron. But when you call it, she's never going to return the favor. And I said, how do you know that, Matt? Did you call it already? He said, no. He goes, when I was on there, she gave me her number too. And when I called her, it was a real number. I heard her name. And then I never got a call back. It's not you, it's them. And sure enough, I called and um, left a message, never heard back. Then there was a third one where um, I met up with a girl, went out, and my friend uh, Matt said to me, you're going to take her out two times. Third time when you try to take her out, she's never going to call you back. We went out to a movie, went out to dinner. Third time, I called her, never heard back. And again, you'd taken her out two times on third time. And what happens with autism is you think everything's personal. So now right. you took out Elizabeth. You sent her the three-page message back to her three-page message. She sends you one back. You send one back. Third time, I wonder what I said. You start analyzing. Oh, yes. What did I do wrong? And now you become obsessed with that person rather realize it's not you, it's them. Analysis paralysis. But a lot of times life is true. It's not you, it's them. Now there's exceptions to the rule. Let me give an exception. When I was in college, there was a guy who had autism and he'd wear a three-piece suit. He'd wear a, a um, trench coat even when it was 105 degrees in Tulsa summer, which was desert heat. And he'd get on the elevator and it smelled like rotting crayfish for a week in a garage smell. Now, in that case, it is him. It's mm -hmm. definitely him. When a girl turns him down, it's that rotting crayfish um, deodorant. <clears throat> yeah, but let's get back to the main question, too. How did you meet Kristen specifically? I mean, what, what, what's the story? The story was is that I was doing the online dating, mm -hmm. and... Um, one of the things my friend always said too, and I share too, is that when the right one comes, it's not hard work. There's no games in it. There's no, I have to do this to make you like me. And I met her on May 11th, going on five years now. And we went out, we met up for coffee at a bean leaf coffee place. And um, everything just went smoothly. We started dating within three days of meeting up, and then the rest is history. How long did it take before you proposed? I waited a year and a half. The reason I waited a year and a half, mm -hmm. was in 2005, October 9th, 2005, I met a girl, and after dating for a month, I thought she was the one for me to marry, and everything seemed like it was God, but it was really not God, and I had seen her. And um, I had a pastor, and he, he said this, spoke this into my life in 2005 when I, 2004 to 2005 when I went through that year trial. He said that when you meet a girl, don't propose right away. He said, there's 12 months in a year, there's different seasons. You got summer season where it's all happiness and everything's joyful. You have winter season where your roots are growing deeper in the relationship. You have spring where all of a sudden, new leaves are appearing on the tree. And then you have the harvest when fruit is ripe, and that's when you want to propose. And he said, go through the seasons of life, learn the, the Acadian or the, the rhythm of the relationship, and then you'll know if it's the right one. So I decided to wait a year, and it ended up being a year and a half that we waited, and 
and then we end up getting married. <clears throat> Where if anyone's interested in our story of our <clears throat> here of how Alan I met, if you're friends with me on Facebook, I did write up a note last night because someone asked me again, how is your old man? Yeah, I'm just gonna write up a note instead of telling people this every time. And we met through a mutual friend, and it was online for us at first, and we were married within less than a year. So <laughs> we we moved. <laughs> pretty quickly and it's worked very well for us this July we'll be celebrating six years together now how about uh, how, how is it in your marriage because it's going to be different from mine definitely if you being married to someone who's neurotypical I mean I'm sure there are many times that you practically drive her crazy with some idiosyncrasies and then there are times that you just knock her socks off because you're, you're, you know, you're just the guy you are, right? Yeah, one of the things that um, my wife has to accommodate for me is that putting on nail polish. Mm. When you put on nail polish, I can smell it weeks later. It drives me nuts. So she'll put it on when I'm teaching and put it on on the porch outside so that I don't have to smell the fumes of the mm. nail polish. Uh-huh. The thing is that when I met her and once we had been dating about six months, I said the woman who married me will have to put up with my memory routine. Every day I get off work at 3.30 p.m. of days I work and then I spend two hours to three hours memory work. And that's just a way to get my neurons um, electrified to work out my mind, to be able to, to calm down and be able to relax without doing that memory work time. I have a hard time relaxing. I call it the three C's of a cat cool, calm, collective, and for my mind to get that way, with the three C's, I need to do my memory work. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, I'm sure it drives her nuts. Um, she has to make plans when we go out based on the times when I do my my speaking engagements. I'm on the road a lot. I just, the day, my Michaela Marie was born March 20th, 3.13 a.m. The doctor said, how do you about having a baby born at 3 8 13 a.m. I said I hope have the area code isn't a bad omen mm-hmm. and um, within 4 at 4 p.m. the next day March 20th at 4 p.m. I was already guest speaking at a Jewish event um, friendship circle so I'm always on the move always trying to get events done then last Friday I was in Jupiter Florida Ernie L pro golfer his director had me come out as a keynote speaker in the All on Autism Conference in Jupiter, Florida. Mm-hmm. And within just a, less than a week of having a baby, I'm already on the move. And I think that autism, right now my focus is this book, getting it out there and making it a success. So I have the 20 speaking engagements during the next three months and then lots of articles I want to get out. I'm already working on my third book. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. You know, if there's any difficulty that's very extreme for Allie and I think that we have to get used to each other in many ways, I think it could be diets with us because we are so different about our foods. I will only eat food that I can eat with my hands and I do not like to eat anything that is messy at all. I, I, I really hate seeing stains and such it just grosses me out I mean if she gets done eating something and she's like can you take my paper plate away from me and if it's got one crumb on it 
I'm taking it away like I'm carrying hazardous waste to a trash can. I, I can't take it. And for her, it's texture food. If something feels wrong to her, she won't eat it. Things like nuts, for instance, she won't go near those because of the texture. And so we have to kind of accommodate each other's diets. With us, um, I say that when I guest spoke at Rob Parsley's church in Columbus, Ohio, he said his son Austin is a very picky eater. He said, what about you? I said, I'll eat anything. There's only one food I don't like, cassava. It's a rare root in Cameroon, Africa. That's the only mm-hmm. food I really do not like at all. I uh, like a lot of food. But for me, one of my paranoias as a kid was bare feet. I thought yeah. feet would make me go into meltdown. It was because when I was three to five years old, I saw a person whose toenails had grown up, and they turned into like a macaroni. <clears throat> and they all her toes are like that. And when I saw that, made me, with the emotional memory side of autism, and I'd see I'd remember that grotesque um, foot that I saw and made me paranoid of bare feet, where some people with food, for me, it was bare feet. Uh, okay, you can't see me right now, but I kind of put my fingers over my eyes a little bit and started rocking back and forth just a little bit. You know, I, I'm doing right now, but I could image everything you were telling me just now. And I, I can say that for me, one of my things I've had to struggle with, and I always want to work with me on it, especially this summer, is water. I am terrified of the water because when I was that age, I went to the beach with my family and got introduced to the undertow. Allie, meanwhile, is a fish in the water, and if I start getting anywhere out, anywhere where I start feeling uncomfortable, I start panicking. And she wanted me to walk out of a gym with her from one end of the pool to the other end, kneel the wall the whole time, going from three feet to five feet, just walk with her. And three times on the way, I asked her if she'd taken out a life insurance policy on me. So, yeah, that's one of the idiosyncrasies that Ari has to deal with. I guess you don't like the Job 38.16 experience. Have you journeyed the springs of the sea or walked the recess of the deep? No, no, not at all, no. You know, something I'd say also interesting for me in marriage, and maybe you can relate to this, is that generally I have not been a touch person. When people come up to me, I do not want them to touch me with a steel rod on my my spine. I do not want them to give me a pat on the back. Nothing like that. The only exception to that is Allie. If she touches me, I can be calmed down immediately. Everything is okay. I can handle it. And there have been so many times I've, I've just been upset, been very, very angry about something. And then I'll feel like her hand on my leg or on my shoulder or something. It's like, okay, okay. The beast is calming down right now. I am no longer out for blood. I can handle this. But anyone else? No, I mean, one of my love languages is touch, but it only applies to her. And mine, I got a good story like that. When I was in third grade, and this is one that I share when I guest speak, when I spoke at Ernie L's All in Autism, this story. When I was in third grade, they had a uh, pup, or they had a clown come to a Cub Scout 
event, and the clown had a puppet of a lamb on its hand. And I had a, one of those um, golfer-type hats on and little knickerbackers and dressed like a person from the 1940s for my Halloween outfit. And the clown took the hat off my head, the, the golf-looking hat, and put it on their kid's head and put it back on my head. And from the sensation of the clown touching me and touching him, I ripped the puppet off the clown's hand, the, the lamb puppet, and proceeded to beat the crap out of the clown. It looked like a scene from Homie D. Clown in Living Cutter where Homie says, Homie, don't play that, and he beats the guy over the head with a brown, dirty sock. So oh, I could okay. totally relate to touch. Where I work at um, Destiny Ministry School, at the end of every semester, they have the professors give hugs to all the students, and some of the students are around smoke, and when I hug them, that always bugs me. Mm -hmm. And I don't like, it's not the touch I don't like, I don't like people's clothes touching my clothes, if that makes sense. I yeah. always have paranoia with that, more than the actual sensation of the touch. It's more of it, my um, clothes picking up whatever's on their clothes, whether it's the smell of smoke, the smell of dog, and what I call that third smell of the third kind. You know? And the thing is, <clears throat> that touch, it can just seem so intrusive mm. a lot of times. But the difference is, I suppose to me, with Allie, it's like, you are not an intrusion on my life, and so I give you total trust with my touch. Now, I, I'm also wondering something about it. That kind of gets into another area that when I was out with my father-in-law recently, he did his debate with Shabir Ali, and we went to a coffee shop to meet with some of the people who were sponsors or social media events, and I was talking to them, and they said, well, you know, you seem to be talking fine right now. You almost expect me to be doing things the way I said, well, yeah, the thing is, though, Mike knows you are, and he's <clears throat> told me about you are, and he's come in, he's got the conversation started, so right now I can tell this is a safe place. If I didn't know that, I would be very quiet. And then afterwards, I can usually be told, sometimes you do talk a little bit too much. And well, I think the thing is, once you get into when you're, you're in a safe place, you kind of want to take as much advantage of it as you can. Yeah, one of the things I was going to add to that with me is, like you were saying, I, have, I like speaking in front of large crowds. Like, I got to speak in front of 6,500 people at Rob Parsley's church. But then I don't like small, intimate groups to speak in sometimes. And what I mean mm. by that is I did mission trips when I was at Oral Roberts University. Mm. I went to Cameroon, I went to Bulgaria. And in your mission team, you have seven, maybe ten people on your mission team. And then you do course activities where we figure out how to get through the, the games. And what I find is when people would be doing those and they'd be discussing different ideas and different ways I'd kind of wander off by myself and have my head down and mm -hmm. not paying attention to that because that kind of group setting I don't relate to and it's when you yeah. get to do in college we'd have to do all projects I do the whole project myself and just have people sign up and sign their name by it I don't like working with projects at all mm -hmm. I do it myself get my projects done get it done in a couple of days and have it um, perfect rather than having imperfection from other people putting into it. Yeah. So when you're teaching, now since you teach at college, 
Do you tell your students anything before the semester gets started? Like, let them know, hey, you know, this could be a bit of a different course for you, and here's why. Not really. I, I, I tell people that um, I always say, um, instead of reading the book that's assigned, we're going to read my notes, because I do notes and everything, and then I go by my, my lectures are based on my knowledge of that subject, and um, I find that that's the best way of um, being a professor, um, sharing information. Sometimes if there are smaller classes, sometimes I get a class of only three students and it's more of a discussion than a lecture. But if it's a bigger class, I do, um, I, I'll say leave questions till the end. If it's a small class, it, we never get through all the lessons because we spend time on every rabbit trail and oh, yeah. across the board. Mm, yeah, I I remember one class I was in seminary. We got back from a break, and we started talking about the latest iPhone session. First, we we're going to talk. We talked about this. Not that it has anything to do with hermeneutics. Not like that's ever stopped us before. <laughs> and then when I was in high school, we had a French teacher, and we had the Channel One thing thing, which is a news story. And both of us in the class, it was a small, small class. We knew, hey. Hey, that's an interesting story. If we get our talking on this, we could spend the whole day just talking about it. And that's what we did sometimes. We just spent the whole day talking about that. It was every single rabbit trail thing is interesting when you're on the spectrum. Yeah, that's true. I also like what you said about how you want things to be perfect because I think and this is one of the great weaknesses we can often have on the spectrum is perfectionism ranks very, very high. And usually, for me, if I'm playing a game, for instance, it's not enough to win the game. I have to be able to unlock everything, find every secret, do everything perfectly. And I can say, okay, now I've done it. Because you don't want anything less than perfect. Yeah, I find I'm a perfectionist. And if I mess up a Bible verse, um, or I mess up in my presentation, when I presented it um, one place in front of a large audience, um, one of the people in the audience afterwards came up to me and he was on the spectrum said, I'd be terrified to speak in front of a couple hundred people. And uh, how do you do it? I said, I can tell you exactly each time I messed up in my presentation. Um, it may be just the one word I didn't say or um, I got the punchline a second later than I normally did when I do the presentation. And I I'll focus sometimes on that rather than the 20 people who came up to me and bought a book or enjoyed my um, message. So I've tried to become more laid back and mm -hmm. focus on that perfect. There's a verse in Matthew chapter 5, ye be perfect, therefore as your Father in heaven is perfect. And verse 48. Perfect. Yep, verse 48, 548. Got it. Yeah, I, I find when I give a talk somewhere only one time did, they give, did I give a talk and I had PowerPoint up there and I consider it one of the worst ones I ever gave because I was absolutely glued to the PowerPoint and having to do things step by step but if I get up there and speak I get up <clears throat> I don't put any notes before me or anything I just get up and speak because I've been studying this stuff for years and I know it well enough I mean when 
I was in a church in Charlotte. Sometimes they'd have want me to teach what was called the educational hour, and they'd say, "Hey, something like two minutes before the hour would start." I'd say, "Hey, do you think you can teach for an hour?" Yeah, sure, I can do that. Because if I if I had notes up there, I'd get distracted by my notes because I think I have to follow those perfectly, and it, it became a problem. Yeah, I find that um, I usually use manuscripts, but then I um, also at the same time go by what's the heart. Nothing mm-hmm. great came out of the mind, but out of the heart. And I find that a lot of times, too, that um, when you have a manuscript, you become enslaved by it. Mm-hmm. Where you know the stuff, you study, you fill yourself up, you're on fire. Like John Wesley said, catch me on fire and let the world around me watch me burn on fire for Christ. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's good to be filled up and um, be able to give out the overflow. Yeah, when I was in the seminary again, there was a time I took a final and one of the questions came back from the New Testament and said, how do you know the New Testament is true? I think I wrote five pages on that, and I don't know how many of them were in the book, but I was just, I know this, that's down, that's down, that's down, and just got done, here it is. In yeah, also, when I was doing this kind of thing, I also wanted to try and be, not just get it done perfectly, but I wanted to be a, the first one done. Everything was a competition. Yeah, I, I found, too, um, seminary, I had to get all A's, which I did, mm-hmm. but it puts a lot of pressure on us, and then um, it makes it the journey not as fun along the way. Mm-hmm. But I've learned over the last few years that one thing's um with my book that come out um i won't read my book until the next book comes out because then i know that some of the stuff they would have taken out that i had in there and they changed some of the wording of things even with my permission knowing they change it i find it um easier not to read what i've written and mm-hmm. when i was telling them that story they said that every movie that robert endell made um, Freddy Krueger, he said he could never watch the himself play Freddy Krueger because his imagination of the character was so much greater than when he saw himself on stage because he could picture perfectly how he, he imagined himself looking that then the movie took away from um, his actual acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I find usually, I don't think I've listened to a single show where I've done again here before it. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe a bits and pieces, but like, you know, it just doesn't seem the same. Well, I, I have listened to debates I've done again before, and I, I find that usually interesting because I don't remember everything, and I'll just get there and think, geez, I wonder how I'm going to answer this question, which I've already answered. I find the same with um, teaching and preaching tapes that mm-hmm. I don't like listening to them again because then I always realize a place I messed up. Mm-hmm. And um, there's some people who love to listen to their messages over and over again and critique them and learn mm-hmm. from them and learn better speaking methods. I feel like with me, it's what you see is what you get. The knowledge is there. People come to hear me speak to, to get vast information, um, research on things, and um, a different perspective would have been on it, I can say. You ever get told also, and one that I used to get told a lot, and probably still would be, be told sometimes that, says, you know, maybe you're going too deep and you're going over our heads. 
too much. It never made sense to me, but I heard it all the time. Yeah, I get that sometimes. Yeah, some people are like, your teaching is too deep, and um, sometimes people just want to feel good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to my parents' church with him for a while, once when I was in Knoxville, and he said, you know, our Sunday school class isn't here today, our teacher isn't here today, I mean, would you step in and fill in for class? I think it was on like Second Kings and such, and I came in and said, okay, let's uh, talk about Second Kings here. Um, who do we think wrote Second Kings? Any ideas? Silence. And when was it written? Silence. And I'm thinking, okay, this isn't a good thing. And why was it written? Silence. And afterwards, <clears throat> my dad was saying, you know, son, I think you needed to uh, come down for our class. Some. And I said, no, in all honesty, I think you all needed to move up some. <laughs> that, that, that kind of thing happens. And to me, it's just, it always my mind when I meet a lot of people. I can say, how how can you not love this stuff and just really enjoy this stuff so much? But I mean, that's part of our obsessive personalities. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, going back to your story, some how did it come about that you were diagnosed? When did this happen? My um, development began normal. In nine months, I said my first word, mommy. Mm -hmm. In 18 months, I had the autism time bomb where I quit having co eye contact, appropriate eye contact, and I began regressing, being able to say the words I previously learned. I went from being able to say mommy to mom, mom, mom. Mm -hmm. And the next time my mom knew something wasn't right, she took me a pediatrician, they said, give him time. And then when it was time for me to enter the school system, at age seven, they diagnosed me then as audio input disorder, which today is PDNOS on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard of PDNOS. What is that exactly? It's um, the development delayed, but it's um, un un that's un um, that's, it's undefined. Um, mm. So they know exactly, they know there's delay, they don't know exactly what's causing it at the time. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the times when I gather, these people that think they might not be capable of speaking and such, it's just it's not the right environment. If you put these people on a the computer, they can start typing things out. If you put them in front of animals, they can start talking then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a lady who's a potbelly pig to teach her son how to, to read, and um, she did a um, story in my um, book how to use um, special interest to create communication lower mm -hmm. Well, right now I'd like to remind when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, this week for Autism Awareness Month, I'm talking with Ron Sanderson, who's a professor at Destiny Seminary in uh, Rochester, Michigan. But if you're here next week, friends, we got a, a really big one lined up for you. You like the New Testament? Yeah, yeah, of course you do. And, you know, you've heard Bart Ehrman has his new book out, Jesus Before the Gospels. Wouldn't it be great to have someone here who could tell us about the eyewitness testimony of the Gospels and the spread of oral tradition when you testament and give us the information we need? Well, friends, we've got it. 
Next week, Richard Bauckham is going to be my guest on the Deeper Waters podcast. And yes, I am very, very stoked about this one here. And if you're wondering about last week with Francis Beckwith, we have rescheduled that for May 28th. I wasn't feeling the best last week, but he is going to be on. And I believe it's May 28th. You can just check the podcast page and see what's coming in. By the way, we are putting these up on YouTube now as we speak. But next week, Richard Balkum will be my guest. Well, let me ask you now about your spiritual life. Because I, I think sometimes this can be very difficult for us. And Ari and I, we pray together every evening before we go to bed. But I find prayer to be something extremely difficult. I, I have a mentor who I email every night after I pray and I've, I tell him every day about a little bit how my life's going, what's going on and such, but me, prayer is difficult because, you know, one-on-one communication is very hard and it's hard communicating to a human being. How much harder is it communicating to God himself? I mean, do, do you find any struggles in your spiritual life as an Aspie? I think um, mine, there's different ways people relate to God. Some it's prayer. They're, they're prayer warrior and they, mm-hmm. they get to war in the heavenly, as they call it. Other people are led by a spirit and then they, they seem to just be in touch with God like they have a headset on and um, or blue ray on and they just hear God easily that way. Mine is more the Word of God. God speaks to me through His Word. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalms 119.11. Mm-hmm. You place on the word of God is the value you place on the voice of God in your life. In my case, I feel God speaks to me more through his word than um, circumstances and prayer necessary. I find that when I'm deep in his word, all of a sudden the verse will come to mind. It's like the um, jack-in-the-box. You're going around, then pop goes a word that changes you where scripture comes to mind. And I find I'm more of a um, mm-hmm. thinker sometimes I abstract, but more literal that through God's word, that's where I connect best. Yeah, I'd, <clears throat> I'd agree with you on that one. I'd add in that me, it's as where it's reading books like good theology, good history, and such, and learning something. I, I can learn something new, and all of a sudden you're just explode into an insight, and that gets me into the whole excited mindset and such. I mean, if you took me to your average church and you had a, a worship service going on, you're playing all this music, trying to get people in the mood, and I'm just saying, can we sit down soon? I'd rather just get to the sermon, okay? That's, that's the part that I'm really interested in. Yeah, and I think Carl Barth said it best. Prayer without study is empty. Study without prayer is blind. Mm. I like that quote. Mm. And I've heard some people say, you know, if you're thinking about God throughout the day a lot, that's a kind of prayer in itself. And now I'm also thinking about that. This can be something that we do on the spectrum, is that we can sometimes have emotion or disconnects. Because I don't think we feel things a lot of times the way other people do. My wife might be the exception. She's a very strong feeling type. But uh, I've, uh, I've been hearing a talking with a lady who saw me speak once. 
And I always says the same thing about me when I'm speaking. And he said, you know, I just could tell that when you were speaking, there are a lot of people who love the knowledge and such. I said, this is someone who just really loves God. And I said, honestly, I would be the last one to say that about myself. Because I, I like myself say, I don't see a great lover of God, but everyone else looks and sees, and I figure for me it's just probably the emotion or disconnect. I like this quote by St. Augustine, by loving the unlovable, God has made me lovable. Mm-hmm. A lot of, we, we have such perfection that we a lot of times feel like we're not serving God the right way. Mm-hmm. Look at um, Moses, he was a murderer, he murdered an um, Egyptian. You look at Paul, he was a persecutor of Christians before he got saved. And a lot of times we forget the journey the the saints before us have gone on and we think that we need to go on this um, mountaintop experience with God and, and instead of just enjoying that journey. Yeah, I, I think we've gotten caught in something in the church. The church has always got caught in that everyone expects to have these grand, huge spiritual events going on in their life. And I say, no, it doesn't usually work that way. Sometimes it can happen through small litter things that you're 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 opening your eyes up to those kinds of things and from my personal life to use an example Allie and I are cat owners and we love our little kitty and there are many times I can just see our cat and think you know what I think it's just amazing that God has created another center of consciousness right here in this little being here and the reason he exists is because God is there. And I'm just going to this whole theological treatise in my head immediately. That, that is just amazing. And it's not a grand event that's happened. It's just a simple thing. I've just seen my cat. And that's all it takes. It's um, a quote from Kempis. There's no creature regarded the apparent insignificance that fails to show us something of God's glory and goodness. Mm-hmm. And Imitation of Christ. Yeah, uh, I can picture my wife as listening to this conversation. Great. Someone who, who's memorized things just like my husband has. Uh, you got, got any G.K. Chesterton? That, 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 that would really drive her crazy because yeah. I quoted Chesterton constantly when we were dating. Yeah, one of my favorite is his is The Real World is Stranger Than Fiction, G.K. Chesterton. Yep. My cat's name on first month. It means a um, miracle, and um, she was a miracle cat that she was astray and hidden under a log, and they found her and just were able to rescue her. So mm-hmm. I love cats too. We got a cat and a rat. You know, when we were dating and engaged and such, I'd crow or something said, You know who said that? Who? Chesterton. And after a while, she just learned over and over and said, Yes, yes, I know. Chesterton, Chesterton, Chesterton. This is my favorite Chesterton. Mm. If God can't soften the heart, he'll soften the mind. <laughs> and you mean, my grasp, my reach so well exceeds my grasp. Mm-hmm. When you were always talking about the, uh, this world, that that we are loved, that so we can become lovable. But I, I always tell people, yeah, that's something that happened for me when I got married, because. <clears throat> I, you know, I lived with a roommate 
before I got married, but it, it's not the same as having a wife there with you. Do you have to connect on every single level? You know, Ari has taught me more about love and theology and such than anything I have learned in a seminary, because I've had to learn it through the school of having to practice it every day to learn what it really means to love someone. Yeah, I've, I've had to grow up to, like, um, once you get married, you realize there's a lot more responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Especially having a baby makes it even more responsibilities. I remember the first night the baby was crying, and the best way I could, illustration I could think of is the Epic of Gilgamesh where it talks about the people were crying so loud, God said, oh, why did I create this thing? <laughs> How I was keeping God awake, the people were so loud, and I think this baby I created keeping me awake. Yeah. It's gotten into a rhythm of sleeping, so it's not so bad anymore. <laughs> yeah, when we first got our cat, our cat was a stray cat too, and he ran under our bed that night and said, Honey, this cat's going to be your responsibility here. You really want the cat? You're going to have to take care of things down here so the cat ran under the bed we didn't know what we should really do or where we'll just go to bed whatever happens happens <clears throat> and I still remember I checked with Tom later it was around 2 20 in the morning you're <coughs> and so then myself and you know being the good caring doting husband that I am I just do what every good husband does at that point and say honey wake up the baby needs you <laughs> Actually, we did get up together, and we were there for about an hour or so with him, taking care of him, watching him eat, because he was still so scared of us at the time, and now he, he, he wants to be with us so much, so much it's incredible, and you know, when you're talking about how you look at your baby crying, and then you think, where Jesus, I can kind of be the same way before God. Sometimes when I'm in Valley, I'm trying to get her to realize something about how much I care about her and say, honey, just trust me and just trust me. Because sometimes it can be hard on the spectrum to trust people. And I can just imagine going to God and saying, you know, God, I just wonder when, when, that, when she's going to be able to trust me because, I mean, like, I do so much good. I, I, I try and care so much. It, isn't it apparent why I can't isn't it just apparent she should just trust me entirely and why doesn't she and like every time I start thinking about it, I can picture God looking at me and saying hey bonehead I've been asking you the same thing all your life when are you going to do that yeah that's true mm-hmm. now what's it like then being a father on the spectrum I think being a father on the spectrum is that we carry more anxiety than most people and then with a baby a baby is something you can't control and with autism you want to be able to control your environment you don't want sensory issues that make you go up you want to be able to control your routine and a baby breaks routine and Tertullian said I'm a spiritual being having earthly experience I always say I'm a, a, a atypical being having now a neurotypical 
experience. In other words, on the experience that everyone else has. One of the things I like to share is that special interests, many times with kids with autism, they're trained, parts of trained, or parts of a toy rather than the whole, or there's something very unique. For me, mine was a prairie duck. But for typical people, a special interest is a baby. Mm-hmm. Baby, that's all they talk about. So autism full circle is when you're doing things that typical people do and you become interested in them just as they do, then you're able to be able to more relate with those around you. And I find that having a baby, everyone's asking about my baby and talking about it, and no one thinks that that's your special interest, your baby. Mm-hmm. They think that it's um, something unusual or stands up because everyone else is, who has a baby, that's their special interest. Yeah. More typical. When you were talking about <clears throat> having a lot of anxiety, man, I'm thinking back about how we like to be in control and such. I'm kind of thinking, I'm going very, very far ahead right now, I think since you're a, a control type guy and you've got a daughter, does that mean that years down the road you're going to be the father on the front porch of a shotgun? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I'll be overprotective like that, yeah. Yeah, you know, my, my father-in-law is a black belt and a sharpshooter. So I had to be careful. You know about the whole special interest. I'm remembering when I was in Bible college, we had one professor who became a grandfather while I was there, and he started showing everyone pictures of his grandbaby over and over and over again. And then once, when we were getting ready to take a master's course, and they, all the professors were coming and introducing us to it, then um, one professor got up and said, you know, I used to get mad doctor so-and-so for showing pictures of his grandbaby because he's going on and on about his grandchild and wondering when he would stop and says, well now I have a grandchild so I have a few pictures here and I, I just said, the madness must stop. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that pretty much goes with what you're talking about with the whole special interest thing. Yeah. How do you handle some of the other difficulties involved with being parent? I mean, granted, your child is still less than a month old, so you haven't got experience with full spectrum. I mean, for instance, have you had to do things like change a dirty diaper yet? Um, I had to, yeah, and it wasn't pleasant. Yeah. Um, one of the things I did is when we picked the location for where we live, we live only 10 minutes from my parents' house, making it easier so that when I'm at work, we have a parent to um, babysit the child. Because living on the spectrum, I'm sure you've experienced too, is that for the degrees and the amount of education you have, you're usually underemployed. I work uh-huh. in a hospital, and I work part-time as a professor, but I'm still, for the degrees I have, making under what a typical person would make. And my wife works full-time in human resource, and then even together with our income, we still make less than um, where we'd like to be right now. And most people would be at the same age. I'm 40 years old, my wife's 33, and that's why we can't afford daycare. Daddy daycare, we can't afford you. So we have to have my parents babysit the the, the Mikhail Marie while we're at work. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to get by. 
Yeah, I understand the whole being underemployed. I haven't been able to find good work for years. What I do now is pretty much assist other ministries and get some income in that way. And we're working on various things to try and change that. That means we we live very inexpensive lives because we have no choice but to do that. And I, I still think there are times when I'd be working at Walmart or a place like that. People's like, you seem so educated. What are you doing wasting your time here? And like, well, the other places don't really take a good look at me and I don't get to do anything. And unfortunately, in, in ministry, I've, I, I found myself to be very, very much annoyed by many of the pastors that I've met. I mean, some exceptions would be the one that we had at our church in Knoxville, who I've interviewed on here. I interviewed him back in February. Great guy, but a lot of him is like, I could run circles around this pastor. He doesn't know his Bible well at all. And somehow he gets to be up there doing this kind of thing. But at the same time, I say, it, it could be a good thing for me because if all the administrative things, such, I, I could not function as a pastor at all. And I worked four years as a youth pastor, and I found that a lot of um, the day-to-day activities I didn't really enjoy. I enjoyed speaking, enjoyed sharing, but then doing um, planning events to Cedar Point or planning events to Michigan Adventure, those were the things that I really didn't enjoy as much as mm-hmm. some like speaking. Yeah, if I was a pastor, I could handle the speaking or research, answering questions. But I went and enjoy the administration and going to visit people in the hospital. I mean, I know that's important and such, but I am not the man to do that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, that, the, the social aspects, I, I would, be, they, they, they would kill me in a pastoral position. Mm. One thing I've thought before is I've said, I, I would just be thrilled with my interest if churches would have a position such as Minister of Apologetics. Have someone come in, just be someone who can answer the questions, and you're going to have a Minister of Worship, a Youth Minister, why not have someone who's a minister in this area? That I could handle. What do you think? I like that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first book is a Christian apologetic book. I'm still waiting to get it published. I'm hoping to um, get it out there and get it published. It's called Thought, Choice, Action, Decision-Making that Releases the Power of the Holy Spirit. And Dr. Ron Rhodes from Dallas Theological did the foreword for the book. And I had over 40 theologians, well-known, do endorsements for the book. Nice. After writing that one, that's how I got the agent. And then from the agent, I got... Charisma House to pick up my book, Appearance Guide to Autism, Practical Advice, Biblical Wisdom. And then I'm just beginning to work on my next book, third book. Um, it's going to be called Double Trouble, Raising Two Ministers on the Autism Spectrum with Savant Abilities. Mm. Where Chuck also has autism. He's, um, he has Asperger's, and he's... Um, a pastor full-time of a 200-member church, Lutheran church, and then he works as a counselor, too. Who was this? My brother, Chuck. Ah, okay. Pastor, full-time pastor. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, and it's probably fitting since we just talked about finances some a bit, that you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here, <clears throat> it really is listener-supported. And I encourage you, please go to our website, deeperwaters.ddns.net. And when you're there, you'll find a link in it tells you to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries, where you click that link, you go straight to Risen Jesus Ministries. Have you gone to the right place? Yes. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona, and they handle that side for us. My mother-in-law is a financial guru, especially specializing in clergy taxes, so yeah, she's a really good one to have around. And you uh, make your donation, and you say, and you contact me or Debbie or Michael and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure that we get the donation. And when they ask, when they, when they do that, we get every single penny that you have. And yes, my cat just came in here, so if you all can hear, that's the little kitty there. It, it's getting close to time to feed him here. And... Uh, when when you do that, I'd really especially like it if you'd consider becoming a monthly donor to a ministry. Monthly donors are our bread and butter. They really keep us going. And friends, we really appreciate people like you and count on people like you. There's also a way that you can uh, buy books on Amazon that I have written or co-written. Co-written on books like Defining Inerrancy or... God and Natural Disasters, or Groundless, a look at Dan Barker, and then books that I've written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christian. And yeah, I've got some books that I need to get back into writing again. This this interviews in my me. I've even got a book on my life on the spectrum and my thoughts on it. And yeah, I need to get back to that one. That's a... so we get distracted again. I think we all have some. I think all of us are suffering with some ADHD in us, and that happens. And guys, there's another great way to donate, and I want you guys to be listening specifically. Although you girls can listen too, if you want you guys to do this. But many women out there seem to like jewelry, and many men seem to like being in good favor with their women. If you want to be in that good favor, then I recommend. Clicking link to buy jewelry through Premier Jewelers, our friend Lena Clester handles that. You go and you buy the lady you love a good rock, a good piece of jewelry. 25% of your purchase goes to deeper waters. Not waiting, guys. That is a good deal. You get a piece of jewelry. The lady in your life loves it, and you donate to a ministry at the same time. That That's a good combination. And people, if you really like the show also, please go on iTunes and leave a favorable review. I love seeing a new iTunes review pop up. I mean, Ron, it's about how we take things personally on the spectrum, where when, when I see a good review, it is a good pump up for me. And it, it's really needed. So, um, Ron, do you have any organizations that you'd like to see people donate to? Um, really, just um, my um, website. Just um, 
get the free information there and um, invite me to church. I if you have a church in um, Eastern Michigan area, I'd love to come out and speak. I go and speak at churches and share my story. I make my living from the medical field, and then the ministry is my is um, what I'm passionate about and do on the side. So. Just I'd love for you to check out SpectrumInclusion.com. Maybe mm-hmm. you can come to your church and share my testimony. And I'm speaking at over 20 events in the next three months, some Joni and Friends events, and um, also some um, big conferences, too, education mm-hmm. conferences. And so- mm-hmm. You know, when I was giving that talk there about donating and it did come back to what you said earlier about the the uh, wearing your heart on your sleeve and how you take things. And uh, I think that, uh, and this applies even to ministers that aren't on the spectrum, that those good words that people give, they really mean a lot. Because a lot of times, if you're in ministry, I tell people many times, ministry can be a thankless position because people come to you with questions, needs, and such. And it can often be a one-way street. And I've I've encouraged several people get a folder if you're in this field on your computer. Call it your encouragement folder. When people send you an encouraging message, email, anything like that, cut and paste it, put it in that folder. And then when you get discouraged later on, open that up, look, and see what difference you've made in people's lives through that. And that can be such a big build-up that I think all of us on the spectrum, we, we really do thrive a lot more of that than people realize. Yeah, I have a folder where I keep letters from people that were encouraging, and then when you feel discouraged, you can be recouraged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I like hearing that you do some work with Johnny and friends as well. We, we when we were in Knoxville, we had a lot of success working with them because they hosted the Miss Shining Star pageant. I don't know if they've done that yet in Michigan, but they did here and it is a beauty pageant for girls and women with disabilities. And, uh, yeah, I'm bringing it up also because one reason I do want to brag on this, the very first Miss Shining Star that we had here in Knoxville, yeah, I took my wife home, and I could say that night, yep, I'm going home with a beauty pageant winner. So, anytime I meet others, I can say, yeah, my wife's won a beauty pageant. How are you doing? Mm-hmm. Now, how is it, then, when you're out here interacting with other people on the spectrum? Let's use one example. What kind of question do parents of people on the spectrum have for you? One of the main questions they ask me is, um, how can I teach my son with Asperger's how to drive a car? Mm. I always say there's no atheist in a, in a foxhole in war, and there's no atheist parents when their child with Asperger's learning how to drive. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I say is get them in a good driving school, take them out in the back roads and help them learn how to drive, and then teach them to drive the slow lane before they get in that fast lane. Did you have any trouble learning how to drive? Um, not too much. I had a 
bad accident on um, the first year I learned to drive. Mm. After that, I was a good driver. Just to pull the car. But no one was hurt. The, the main thing I remember about learning how to drive is that my dad and I often spoke different languages because he was, he's very much a car guy in many ways, and I'm not. And so he, he, he kept forgetting this when he was going to teach me something. We'd be playing with time, tell me when to pull out, and he said, Pull out after this Ford. What? The blue car. Oh! Okay. And for me, that, that was the difficult because my mind did not understand Ford. And, and we'd be parking when park somewhere, he'd say, Park next to the Chevrolet. What? The red car. Oh, okay. And other than that, for me, driving really isn't a problem. And a lot of people, I think, after a while, they see it as a chore. And maybe it's something with people are still on the spectrum, but I don't think I ever really lose the wonder of the new. If, for me on the spectrum, things don't get old a lot of times. I can still tell the same joke over and over, and it's just as funny as it was the first time. Uh, I, I, I see you're nodding, and you said, you're, you said yes there a little bit. Do you, do you think the same kind of thing about yep. people on the spectrum, that monotonous doesn't really enter into our vocabulary? Same jokes, the same... Um, I remember a kid who was always trying to meet girls who had Asperger's, and every single dance, every single church event, he'd use the same pickup line. In my Catholic group, the girls are so old, that I was singing the Macarena and I almost um, tripped over uh, um, Walker. Mm-hmm. And he, but he used the same line everywhere he went. And then even I'll sometimes say the um, same lines. One of mine is, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'll, talk to you, I'll say, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's common for autism to use the same line over and over again. Or same yeah. G.K. Chesterton once said the gift of a child is that they can exalt in the monotonous over and over. And for us, it's definitely the monotonous. I can be watching a show and I said, you've seen this a dozen times before. I said, yeah, but it's still funny. It's still funny. Yeah, it's like Goonies. I've seen that a million times. Or Star Wars or mm-hmm. old school, some of the movies I can just watch over and over again. Mm-hmm. For me, it, it can be watching an episode of The Big Bang Theory. My wife, haven't you seen this episode several times before? Yeah. Do you have a point with that, or what? And when Smallville was on, people know that I had that one pretty much every single episode title memorized in order. Yes, I know all about this. Don't try and question me on it. I know it. That, that's something else that I think we have going on on the spectrum a lot of times is that there's an, a meme I've seen on mine that it has, for instance, it, it's a light switch. And when the top switch, it says, completely obsessed, bottom switch, no interest whatsoever. And that's the way it is with us. We are either completely obsessed or we have zero interest whatsoever. I think a lot of times we um, get focused in on things, and then if it's not an interest to us, we just plug out or don't show any 
And that that's something that I think really just doesn't resonate with people. And I, I'm sure you've probably been told many times with people that they could think you're being rude about something when you're really not, at least you're not intending to be rude, but reactions are mistook that way. And do, do you get being told that you're rude sometimes? or? Yeah, sometimes, and sometimes people um, take things that you say the wrong way. There's a guy I interviewed, Jesse, who wrote a um, sewing book on autism called My Wife with Asperger's, and his dad told him, you need a job where you'll never offend anyone, never say anything that's going to get you fired or hurt the clients. He said, so I got a job at a funeral home where all the clients are dead. I, I can't help but think with uh, about the time that uh, I mean the way that we got to get to know Hugh Ross somewhere and such as Ari and I had been told that a lot of people on the spectrum enter the field of astronomy and that kind of research <coughs> and <coughs> so Mike was with us at an apologetics conference and he was going to be and Hugh Ross was going to be speaking there and he was sitting next to Hugh and so we asked him so Hey, Mike, why don't you ask him if he, if he knows anyone on the spectrum? So he got next to Hugh Ross and said, do you know anyone, do you work with anyone who has Asperger's? And he said, I have Asperger's. I had him do an endorsement for my book. Mm-hmm. Um, the first endorsement in my book is Hugh Ross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's been on the show before talking about Asperger's, and we, we have a really good connection. We, we got to see each other at the uh, the... Evangelical Theological Society meeting, and you know this gets me to think something else that usually many of us on the spectrum I think can be quiet and shy and such. But when we get to a place like that, which way it be for you and I, we we suddenly light up immediately, and it's much easier to come out of our shell. And for me, it was much easier to go up to someone who's been one of my heroes and say, hi, I'm so-and-so. It's so great to get to meet you finally and such. Yeah, like um, a lot of times, too, uh, I went to, um, there's a wrestler named George the Animal Steel, and um, he was doing a book signing at Barnes & Nobles near a college I was taking a class at, because where I work will pay for college class, so I take extra um, college class they had my degrees and um, when I was there there was a kid with autism and he'd bring up events in George the Animal Steel's life that he couldn't even remember when he was doing his book signing mm-hmm. just so that reminds me of how he reacted when he this kid when he met George the Animal Steel yeah I, I, I tell people that if you meet someone on the spectrum and you want to form a relationship with them and get their trust and such, find out what they're passionate about and get into their world. If you came up to me years ago and started talking about Smallville, for instance, you would be in my world immediately. We could talk. You came up and talked to me about apologetics or theology, you're in my world. 
we can talk. You come up to me and start talking about football. Sorry, you're out. I have no interest whatsoever. Who's your favorite um, Christian apologetic? Ah, geez, that's a tough one in many ways. And my father-in-law's interfered, and I have a lot of bias towards him, but uh, someone who I'm not related to is Give me anything to read by N.T. Wright, and I am thoroughly stoked at that point. And he, <clears throat> my, my wife told me once we were living in Knoxville that she found out that he'd been in Chattanooga recently, and I hadn't known about it, and we missed it. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm just going to go into mourning right now <laughs> and, and just moan my losses here. But yeah. Reading N.T. Wright is, is <clears throat> just terrible for me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping someday I get to meet him. Yeah, I haven't met N.T. Wright yet. He's one, if you send him an email, he'll always email you back, though. Yeah, I, I, I did email him once about being on the show, and he did email me back. And Allie saw me getting that email, and she said, it, it looked like you were on ecstasy when you got that email. You were just so excited. Something else I think that this gives us some spectrum. Something I was just thinking when we talk about trust and such is that Ari and I have said that loyalty is very big for us on the spectrum and if someone wrongs us when we're on the spectrum, we do hold grudges. You do not forget that when you don't trust the person again, but if you become someone we think we can trust, we will crawl through fire for you. I mean, do, do you think that's accurate too? Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, with the whole book thing, um, I had a while back someone do an interview, but it was a one they had to type up answers to, and then they tried to use it to promote their book at the expense of um, my um, ideas and then make my ideas, um, their book, to, it was against like what my ideas were. And um, I felt hurt by it, and then I sent him a message back, you know, you, you can't do that to people. You can't um, use the person at their expense to try and promote your own self and then make them look bad. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things I realized is that anyone who's successful, after a while, someone's going to write something bad about them. And that's something with autism you got to realize that if someone writes a bad review, if someone writes something and you have a hundred good reviews, look at those, don't worry about the one who wrote a bad review. Even many of my friends who um, are very successful in life, people like Dr. Jack Van MP, people like Rob Parsley, there will always be someone out there who says something bad about them. Or any ministry who has a big ministry, there's always going to be someone who says something about them. And mm-hmm. as your ministry gets bigger, especially having autism, you got to um, shake the dust off your feet, as Gia said, when someone says or does something that's hurtful and not allow your emotional memory to charge by it continually. Yeah, I, I've had to learn to build up tough skin after a while. And my wife said, I don't know how you do it. And I said, um, so the thing is, I've had to learn some people are worth listening to, some people aren't. 
if somebody on the internet, some random stranger wants to call me an idiot for being a Christian or something like that, nope. I'll just smile and say, yeah, that's cute and such. Now, if someone like my wife has a criticism of something I've said, okay, I'm going to take that one a lot more seriously. But if it's just some random person, life's too short and I can't please everyone. There's an old saying, um, mm. make compliments in cement, your, in your um, complaints, make them in, um, out of dust so they can be blown away. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're talking about someone using your ideas and such, there was a time shortly after Ari and I got married and there was someone from another ministry who knew me and he was contacting me and saying, hey, someone sent in this question about ministry, can you tell me how I should answer that and such and so I started answering questions and then after a while I I said you know and I'm, I'm getting troubled by this because I'm answering all these questions and nothing is coming from it. and so next time this person came to me I said you know I mean you know I'm, I'm glad to help you out and such but my family is struggling financially right now and I'll be glad to help you answer questions but you're a ministry, and I could use some support. If I'm answering questions, are you? would you be willing to make a donation to my ministry on the other side to kind of compensate for what I'm doing for you? He's like, oh, okay, thanks. And that was the end of it. And when that happens, I told him, I am, I'm just really ticked off right now, Matt, because here's someone who was wanting just simply to use me for his own ministry and then when I ask for something back oh sorry not interested and what I I tell Ari sometimes you know it seems sometimes there are a lot of people who want to come and get the fruit of a garden but they don't want to take any part in planting and sowing and reaping that's true mm-hmm. so it, since you're one who's talked about this, I mean, what steps have you learned in order to deal with criticism, so especially since everything's taken personally? I've learned that um, when someone criticizes you, look at it. Also, if it's someone who writes something about you, Google them. Because, mm-hmm. like, what I found is that um, personally to the, the criticism with mine promote careers and I found out they did it to five other people who were very successful mm-hmm. and they realized that um, they did it um, because they saw me as someone who had a platform and that they could um, gain off of it and I think that's key too is that when someone criticizes you see how they treat other people mm-hmm. it's remember it's not you it's them if mm-hmm. they treat you like that someone else yeah the same uh, way I often tell my wife these kind of people that like I know a personality. I mean, you're dealing with a lot of people, especially if you're doing internet projects like I am. A lot of people aren't very interested in talking about truth. They want to emit, emote. They want to emotionally vomit everywhere, as it were, and such. And so you don't really listen. I mean, when you meet people who think they're so brilliant because just by virtue of opinion they have. You don't bother. You just look and say, okay, what's your argument? Why do you believe that and such? And, you know, maybe every now and then, sometimes you will meet someone who gets the best of you. But 
after a while, when you keep doing this kind of thing, it doesn't happen, and you have to know, really, who you are, and what you are capable of, and know that what person over here says, it doesn't really matter, and if you really have something to work on, the people who care about you will tell you what that is. I agree with that. And it, it is something you have to deal with, especially since you've said you've written a book on apologetics. If you're doing apologetics in this day and age, especially on the internet, it is rough. There are trolls and monsters of all sorts out there, and they don't care about what they say and do to you. They are out there to seek to kill and destroy at that point. And so, and as I say, you have to know how to deal with it. And, and it might sound cold to some people. I say, listen, if these people are, if it means they may still want to believe in Jesus and such, I'm going to bed and I'm sleeping by the evening. I am not going to stay up worrying about them. That's their decision. That's their responsibility. I've done my part. Yep, and that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that kind of, that, that's Which kind I want good story a Christian apologetic one okay. uh, being um, on the spectrum we we don't we lack filter yeah so there's a guy I work with who's an evangelical atheist he tries to make everyone become an atheist and he's evangelical about it in a way you know what I mean he acts like it's good news of being an atheist so he came up to me thinking he was going to outsmart me and he said um, you know why I don't believe the Bible I said why he goes um, because if there was only Adam and Eve, then Cain would have had sex with his sister. And I said, James, that's the guy's name. I said, the only alternative even worse. I said, it was an ape. We could go to the zoo, we can get you some lingerie, and then you can try it out and see what you think better. And the, the guy had nothing to say. Same guy had a huge um, drug problem. He'd come in high out of his mind. One day he came in, he's like, um, I'll pay you 50 bucks to work my shift. I said, no, I can't. I got an event I'm doing tonight. Because I'll pay you 100. I looked at him. I said, I bet you pay 200 bucks for a clean urine about now. <laughs> yeah, I remember being at a a bookstore once at a mall. There was somebody up there doing like some crazy, crazy theory like the star of David being hidden in the atom, or something like that, and such. And I remember, you know, saying, well, tell me what's your definition of evil at one point, because he's talking about morality, and he said, he said, oh, rape, murder, abuse, and I said, those aren't definitions of evil, and his eyes just looked up, he's like, what the heck are you talking about, and I said, no, those aren't definitions of evil. That's examples of evil. What's the definition you use to recognize the example? I mean, that's the, the, the kind of encounter I like to have. And, of course, we've just recently moved to a whole new apartment complex here, so I've told out, told out, and we, we saw them once when we were driving out. We saw some Mormons. I live here and says, oh my gosh, I can't wait until the day comes that they knock on our door. I mean, when Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses come by, that's Christmas time here. That's the time to celebrate. 
Do they ever come by? Um, they used to come by some when we lived in the city of Coryton, which we lived in before we came here. They came by for a while, maybe visiting with us and chatting, and then after a while they just stopped coming. I, I never understood it. I'm, I'm such a nice guy. Why would they want to stop seeing me? I got a funny story. Um, what I used to do when the Jehovah's Witnesses would come to my house is um, when I was in seminary, I had taken three years of Greek. I ask them, do you know Greek? And then the, they all would say, yeah, I know Greek. So I'd hand them a Greek New Testament and just open up a random place and say, can you please read this? And they, of course they say, I can't read this. And I'd translate it for them. And there was a guy who came by my house and um, this was right when I got out of seminary. And um, I pulled out my Greek New Testament and handed him it and said, um, I asked him first, can you read Greek? He said, yes. So I handed him a Greek New Testament. I had one. I said, read this. And he couldn't read it. And years later, I was working in a place, and a guy overheard me teach that I taught at Destiny Ministry, and that I teach Greek, and he looked at me and said, I know Greek, and right then I realized it was the same guy, and he didn't know Greek. <laughs> so what happened? Did you try and do the same thing to him again, or what? The what? Did you try and do the same thing to him again, or what? No, I couldn't then. Hmm, that, that's too bad, huh? I, I I asked him some question. I knew that he didn't know. He still didn't know Greek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm currently trying to work right now on learning the language myself. And my father-in-law, he's kind of like a Greek guru, and he's going to be working with me on it as well from time to time. But I've been told, yeah, Greek is a language you'll probably be able to catch on to pretty simply because of the way your mind works. You're going to handle all the information very, very well. That's pretty easy to pick up once you get it going. Mm. Yeah, once you get it going, it's just, just like in so many cases, it's easy to get distracted and lose the focus, but that's something that we have to work on the spectrum is just getting our discipline up. As we're getting near to the time, I mean, what what do you see going on in the future for for the, for the community of people with autism? I mean, do you think things are getting better for people with autism? I mean, what changes do you think are coming? I think one of the major changes is um, in the whole area of employment. Mm-hmm. Something astronomical like 70% of people with autism have never been gainfully or never had a job and it's like only 5% or less than 5% will ever have gainful employment and I think that's going to be key in Michigan I heard it on the radio and I saw on TV for autism awareness they're trying to create more job opportunities I think that's going to be the future of autism is being able to get employers be able to use the talents of people on the autism spectrum and use them for God's glory and use them to do um, a great job mm-hmm. for other people too. Mm-hmm. How do you think an employer could best use someone on the spectrum? I think an employer can best use someone on the spectrum by 
seeing their gifts, working with their um, seeing that they're neurologically they may operate different than other people, but then the not discriminate based on neurological differences. And it probably best to not put them in a job where they have to be a people person, as it were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that this is going to happen, or is it just something you hope happens? I think it will happen. I think it, it takes advocacy. It takes um, understanding, um, awareness, and um, education. And mm-hmm. What can people do if they want to get involved in helping out with something like this? Organization like um, Autism Society of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, go online, find a uh, support group if you're on the spectrum, and um, just get involved. Mm-hmm. And do, do you think it's really helpful when we have something come around like this month being? Autism Awareness Month. Do you do you support that? Yeah, I'm for Autism Awareness. I on the first I was speaking at Ernie L's. I, I got a bunch of um, speaking engagements at schools and places like that to create autism awareness, make younger people realize um, the diversity of autism and what makes us unique. And also, I'm speaking at many churches on autism awareness and creating. Um, a greater comprehensive what autism is and how people can relate with people with autism and help them out and they can help typical people out too. Yeah, I think people are being more aware of autism. My mother-in-law, Debbie, likes to watch the show called The Middle, for instance, and I think it's Zebra said or she thinks that the youngest son on there has Asperger's. And so when, when that kind of thing happens, I, I take it as a really good sign, provided they do the character well and they treat us with respect, because it, that's when I, hey, we are out here and this is the way we, we can be. Mm-hmm. And, and when we go mainstream and, but, and we, we could be portrayed wrongly, but if we're portrayed the way we are, I think it helps people see that in many ways we can be people just like them. Yeah, it's true. Well, we're getting near the time where we need to be wrapping things up here, unfortunately. Um, do you have a, a, a blog, a website, an email, a way that people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? They can get in touch with me. My email is sandison, S-A-N-D-I-S-O-N, 456 at hotmail.com. Mm-hmm. My website is spectruminclusion.com. And the reason it's spectruminclusion.com is Part of my ministry is I'm on the spectrum and I'm trying to get people included who are on the spectrum in everyday activities of life. Church, school, mm-hmm. career, mm-hmm. relationships, and spectrum inclusion helps young adults become all they can become. Do you have any uh, final message you'd like to leave today from the Deeper Waters audience? I agree with this um, quote that I like. No child is totally autistic, and no child has no autism. Even God at his autistic moment, that's why a planet sin. Hmm, interesting. That, that leaves me something to think about. Well, Ron, it's been fun having you here, and hopefully we'll have you back here again sometime. 
Thanks so much, and I'd love to be back on your show sometime. Okay. And just let me know when the link is up, send me so I can um, share it with my um, followers at my um, Facebook fan page and also at I really appreciate that, and I'd like to remind everyone, if you're here next week, talking about uh, Bart Ehrman's book and his book, which, by the way, was the 10th anniversary edition, likely coming out this autumn, is going to be Richard Balcom here, talking about Jesus and the eyewitnesses and his response to Jesus before the Gospels by Bart Ehrman. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>